Welcome to another episode of the SaaS Podcast. I'm your host, Omar Khan, and this is a show where I interview proven founders and industry experts who share their stories, strategies, and insights to help you build, launch, and grow your SaaS business. In this episode, I talk to Roxanne Petraeus, the co-founder and CEO of Athena, a SaaS startup building modern compliance training software. In 2018, Roxanne started a new job as a McKinsey consultant and was surprised to find that even a company known for its phenomenal training used mediocre compliance training software. It sparked an idea in her mind to create better software. She started to talk to people about her idea, which eventually led to meeting her co-founder and CTO, Anne. The two of them set out to build Athena in 2019. Roxanne talked with HR folks at over 30 different companies to understand their challenges. And in a few short weeks, the duo created their MVP. Although they didn't charge for it initially, they were able to land their first customer in four months. Today, Athena is a seven-figure SaaS business with around 250 customers, including Netflix, Zendesk, Figma, and Notion. Almost 100,000 employees are now using Athena for their compliance training, and the founders have raised just over $50 million to date. In this episode, we discuss how the two founders have grown their business mainly from a press article and word of mouth. We talk about raising money and some of the lessons Roxanne has learned from raising a seed round all the way through to a Series B so far. How Roxanne has learned to sell compliance software without having a background in compliance or HR. The challenges the two women founders faced while building their SaaS business, which most men founders probably wouldn't have faced. And how they're adapting their business, which is currently dependent on tech companies as customers, in response to the wave of layoffs. So I hope you enjoy it. Are you looking to sell your online business or buy one to start your entrepreneurial journey? Discover exciting opportunities with Bupos.com. Bupos is the number one platform for buying and selling profitable online businesses and the first to offer built-in acquisition financing for qualified buyers. At Bupos.com, you can explore their exclusive listings, browse listings from other marketplaces, or submit your own deal for approval. Bupos can offer pre-approved financing for recurring revenue businesses, allowing you to access fast funding with no personal guarantees. And their experienced M&A advisory team supports you every step of the way. To learn more, visit sasclub.io slash Bupos. That's sasclub.io slash B-O-O-P-O-S. Sign up today and get qualified to sell your business or find your next deal. Is your team struggling with spreadsheets that can't keep up with your workflows? It's time to switch to Jotform Tables. Jotform Tables is an all-in-one workspace that lets you collect, organize, and manage data seamlessly. Not only can you create online forms to gather data directly in Jotform Tables, but it also serves as a powerful tool to manage and analyze the data collected from your existing Jotform forms. You can also import spreadsheets or enter information manually, and all your data is stored securely in one place. Jotform Tables makes collaboration a breeze. You can share your tables with a single click and work with your team in real time. Say goodbye to version control issues and hello to efficient teamwork. Get started with Jotform tables for free today at sasclub.io slash jotform. That's sasclub.io slash jotform. Hey, are you struggling to grow your SaaS business? 
As a SaaS founder, you know that having the right tools is crucial for growing your SaaS business effectively. But with so many options, choosing the best ones for your needs can be overwhelming. That's where the SaaS toolkit comes in. This handy guide covers the 12 essential types of tools you need to supercharge your growth. Inside, you'll find a detailed look at tools successful SaaS startups have used to scale to seven figures and beyond. It gives you specific examples and makes practical recommendations to help you choose the right tools for your SaaS business. Don't miss out. Visit thesastoolkit.com to download your free copy and unlock faster growth for your SaaS business. That's thesastoolkit.com. All right, Roxanne, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Excited to be here. Do you have a favorite quote? Something that inspires you that you can share with us? Um, I feel like it changes day to day, but one recently that I have really liked, I was talking to one of our early customers and you know, in tech and it's been a hard time in tech. And he's like, people have forgotten that leaders do work. And I was like, I really like that, that like leaders do work. I feel like that um, sort of embodies like I think the leadership philosophy I grew up with in the army. And um, that's been kind of motivating me and my team. Awesome. I want to talk a little bit about your background, but before we do that, just give people the the overview of Athena. What does the product do? Who's it for? What's the main problem you're helping to solve? So Athena is compliance training platform for modern teams. The problem we're trying to solve is um, that really crappy uh, traditional experience you have where you're at a great company most days of the year, but then once a year you get an email saying, do six hours of really dumb kind of boring, uh, totally irrelevant training about everything from sexual harassment to code of conduct, insider trading, all of that. And the way we've solved it is make the training experience for employees um, actually enjoyable. Uh, employees can rate our training. We have a, um, over a million positive employee reviews for what was historically the office's most hated training. And then for our users, which are actually um, HR people ops leaders, um, typically at companies, goes up to legal. We've automated workflows, made it super simple for them to assign, track, remind, and show, for example, regulators completion of required training. I've got to be honest, when, when uh, I was going through with my team and looking at pitches and, and you know, the potential next round of people we wanted to invite on the show, when I saw compliance training, I was like, no. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty boring. For someone who's been through that in, in the corporate world, yeah, exactly. It kind of just drains the energy out of you. And then when I kind of started to look at what you were doing and actually trying to fix some of that, it was like, okay, no, this, there's something interesting here. So um, I'm glad to... Uh, we were able to make this happen. Can you give us a sense of the size of the business? Where are you in terms, you know, in terms of revenue, customers, size of team? See, we're about a three-year-old business, um, about 60 employees, have about um, north of 250 or so customers on our platform, and it's representing almost 100,000 at this point um, employees or end learners on the platform. So let's talk about what you were doing before you started Athena. Like, what's your background? I was an army officer for about seven years, so served on active duty, you know, deployed to Afghanistan, worked in Mongolia and Cambodia, so very not related to SAS at all, um, but good leadership training. And then I bootstrapped a business and then uh, was a consultant for just about a year um, before co-founding Athena. And um, you're also related to a, a slightly more well-known Petraeus as well, aren't you? I am not the more well-known Petraeus, that is fair. Um, yeah, so my father-in-law is retired uh, General David Petraeus, who um, commanded forces in Iraq and Afghanistan. Okay, so let's talk about where the idea for, for this business came from. What led you to say, I'm going to go and solve this compliance training problem? 
Um, I totally hear you. Compliance is incredibly boring. I think it's just reframed um, as culture because that's really what it is. It's like a culture of, do you have a culture of people doing the right thing or not? And when you talk about it that way, I think it's actually fascinating, right? Like everybody is interested in whatever fraud is perpetrated that's on the cover of the New York Times. When Me Too um, was going on, like that was, you know, captured so much attention. And so I came at it from that angle, which is like, I was a woman in the army and it's no secret that the army really struggles with gender inclusivity, issues of harassment and assault. And so I just saw both really great leaders and not so great leaders and the cultures that they brought about and thought a lot about like, what is um, doing the right thing look like and how do you get people to do that? And then, so that was percolating, but then at McKinsey, I was going through kind of what you described that like just click next, check the box type training. And I thought it was very strange because McKinsey is otherwise known for phenomenal training, corporate learning, you know, all of it. And so I was surprised to see what I had seen in the army essentially at McKinsey. And it just struck me as odd. Like there's, there's, you know, no way that this is what, you know, good looks like. And it was really around the time that I had a bet with someone on the team that I could write really good email subject lines for what is otherwise boring emails and get more people to open them. And like, I won the bet and it just kind of showed me like, you don't, you can make even boring topics very interesting if you, if you try. And so then I ended up doing a little bit more research thinking surely after me too, someone had come along and modernized um, compliance training. Like how could it possibly be that we realized the scope of the problem and just like to put a fine point on it. In the years after Me Too, more CEOs were removed for personal misconduct than for financial shortcomings, meaning like CEOs were getting removed for all of the stuff that compliance training addresses, not because they missed quarterly earnings you know, targets. And so it's incredibly disruptive to a business, let alone like the, the you know, the personal cost of all of these and sometimes the, the personal liability of them. So, yeah, that was sort of the long and the short of recognizing that there was um there had been a sea change in how we think about these issues, but there hadn't been a corresponding change in the products that are supposed to solve them. So how did you meet your co-founder, Anne? Yeah, I think um, it was like one of those serendipitous moments. I started thinking about this idea um, and it was just like a real kernel of an idea, like basically like not bad compliance training. Started talking to some founders in the New York City area, met one and you know, I almost didn't pitch him because I thought he was the founder of this AI company and, you know, his like big deal company. And I had this like what I thought was kind of a small idea and ended up just telling him like, hey, I got this idea. And his eyes lit up because he had said he had just had to make his whole company go through compliance training and thought it was so dumb and such a waste of time and was like, oh, I know your co-founder. And I didn't take him that seriously at the time. So I was like, that's a you know pretty absurd statement. But um, turns out he was totally right. We had maybe two or three phone calls, met in person once and got into business like pretty quickly, um, not having any like shared connection. We went to the same college, but didn't know each other there. So totally serendipitous. You've got this idea, you've got a, a co-founder on board and basically your, your CTO. How did the two of you get started? Did you, did you go out and talk to customers? Did you try to raise money? Did you try to start building the product? all of the above, like what did you do next? We're in the all of the above category. We launched about three weeks after, we launched our beta three weeks after we like had formally gotten together. Um, so it was very quick. Um, and we raised shortly after that. And we talked to a bunch of um, customers. And the way I did that was just like, you know, have a bunch of conversations. So I'd ask somebody, hey, is there like an HR person at your office? Will they talk to me? And 
usually when I'd say like, I want to talk about compliance training, everyone hated it so much that they're like, yeah, I'll talk to you about it. Like I'll, com- I'll almost complain to you about it. It's like, great. Um, and so I just had a bunch of those and I'd follow every breadcrumb. I'd say like, do you have any friends who might want to talk to me? Um, so just like very scrappy. I kept a huge Google doc, you know, just jotted down my notes of what, you know, frustrated everybody. I was learning about the space because I'm not HR, I'm not legal. And then simultaneously thinking about the product and, and brain is going to work on, you know, what could a really, really scrappy MVP look like? I would say we definitely fit in the bucket of like, are quite embarrassed by our first product looking back on it. And then got it out the door because New York's um, city and state at the time were changing the regulations such that every company with one or more employees was required to train annually on sexual harassment starting in October. And I think Ann and I got together in September. And so we thought, like, we've got to get something out to hit this wave because, like, maybe we can ride it and, you know, ended up being correct. But it was definitely a bit of a scramble to get something out that quickly. So when you were talking to potential customers, HR folks, did you have any kind of structure to the conversation, the interview, you know, doing lean startup stuff or the mom test or any of this stuff? Or was it just like, just tell me about, you know, your, your problems? Like, how, how did you approach that? And, and what did you do to make those as, as kind of useful conversations as they could be for you at the time? I read the Lean Startup, liked that methodology. I, I think, but, you know, look back, I had a doc with maybe five questions Thankfully at McKinsey, I had done some work where I had done expert interviews. And so I kind of treated it like expert interviews, you know, so you go and ask a bunch of people and you can get smart on a topic very quickly if you, you know, just um, have a bunch of conversations and you're targeted. So I would definitely ask the same questions. I think I was like, why do you train? You know, what do you like about it? What do you not like about it? But then I would certainly follow breadcrumbs if someone kind of went off script and had something um, that I hadn't heard before. And I stopped having conversations essentially when it was like the marginal value of an additional conversation was, was kind of zero. Like, okay, they're just all telling me the same thing. Like, got it. You know, so they might have slightly different variations, but it was like, you hate it because it's a pain to administer and you hate it because your employees hate it, but you have to do it. Like, got it. Um, And so like, I just got to that point and kept a, like, I think a, you know, Google folder or something of just all these different conversations and would try to synthesize them for Anne so that her product brain could kind of think about like, okay, this is the problem. What's the solution? Yeah. That's kind of how we, how we tackled that. And then roughly how many conversations did it take for you to get to that point where you were like, I'm kind of just hearing the same thing over and over again? Honestly, it happened pretty quickly because the space we're in is very established. And so I would say like somewhere around 30 to 50, I think is probably the number that I had before I was like, you know, at this point, I would just like to be able to sell something and see if that sticks because like the problem statement has been articulated um, so many times. And then so at the same time, you're you're building this MVP and it was the embarrassed version, which is fine. And so what did you do with this? Did you, first of all, did you, did you charge for it from day one or was it more about kind of getting people to look at it and give you feedback? Like what, which approach did you take? Because we were really um, trying to get something out very quickly. We decided not to charge for our first beta. And I want to say we had something like, let's call it 10 customers in that beta, you know, so um, it was free. And I'm glad that we did that uh, approach because of just how quickly we were like moving. It, it sort of felt felt right. And I think we did something pretty like clever that at least worked for the problem we were solving, which is we talked to uh, in all these conversations I was having. I talked to HR at a VC fund, 
And she said like, oh yeah, you know, I hate this. And also she was aware of the changing regulations. And I can't remember if I proposed it or if if she did, but essentially where we got to is like, if you guys can give us something for free, I will share it with my portfolio companies. I'm not going to make them do it, but I will send an email to, you know, all whatever, 50 portfolio companies we have, whatever it was saying, Hey guys, there is this regulation. You need to know about this change. And here's a solution if you want to use their solution. And I think it had like a Google form in it, you know, sign up here. And I just remember like, oh my gosh, people are signing up, you know? And so that's how we got our first 10 was just through, mostly through this cohort and then a little bit through our networks. You know, we had a friend who was starting a company. Okay, great. Do you, you know, 10 people want to be be in it? That kind of thing. Um, and that got us our first beta cohort, which really gave us some amazing feedback, both from the employee and the admin experience that we then turned into like essentially going heads down. And I think we released our actual product around, I want to say like late January, early February of 2020. And that we did charge for from day one with the idea that we wanted to demonstrate to ourselves that, hey, like someone would you know really pay for this. There's, there's real value there. How long did that take from the point you started to the first customer? Um, so that would probably be like, I don't know, four months or so, but we did pre-sale. So I remember like, you know, over the like Christmas holiday, like doing some some pre-sales. So let's call it like we had existed for a quarter um, or so before we were selling. What did your first customer pay you? I should know this. Um, I still remember like a couple of the first calls where we signed somebody. I don't remember exactly like, you know, wasn't very much. These are like at the time was 30 person companies that we thought like, holy smokes. I remember our first large customer, like very large customer, um, said, can you sign, send over the MSA? And we had just been doing online click through, you know, uh, order forms or something. And I immediately had to email out our network and say, can someone give me an MSA? Cause like, we really hadn't been you know, like, and all of our customers had been quite small and had been okay with the sort of self-serve flow. Um, and yeah, so it was definitely like, oh, we got a, we got a whale that we had not been anticipating. The the third thing you said was you were also going and trying to raise some money or you you did raise some money shortly after kind of had these conversations and building the product. How much did you raise and 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 generally like how easy or difficult was was it to raise that first round? The first round for us was actually very easy and I never want to say easy cuz like fundraising is like, you know, can just be like consistent um face punches, but for us, this was pretty easy and I'll attribute that like entirely to my co-founder. So we raised from um, Ali Partovi's Neo Fund. They um, they have this network of engineers and they um, do like pre-seed, seed. Um, I think the world of, of him and of, of Neo. And he had known Anne, my co-founder from um, Engineering Networks. And like later after I talked to him, because I remember pitching him being very nervous and I said, like, what did you think of the first pitch? And he's like, honestly, I don't really remember it. I wasn't paying attention. We were going to invest in you because I believed in Anne. And, you know, you you passed the, like, sniff test. But that he had just seen her track record. And um, and so, you know, it was easy. But I have to credit my co-founder for, for making that round come together quite quickly. How much did you raise, by the way? That was about 750K. So it was a pre-seed. And it was Ali, you know, some great angels. That's how we, we pulled that together. I was watching uh, a video with you and Hunter Walk, and uh, you know he's he's another investor in the company, but he he didn't invest in in the first round, and made it very clear how much he regrets not having invested earlier. 
can you just just help us kind of understand like that's kind of a good example of an investor who who kind of eventually saw the opportunity but at that early stage he had some concerns that were holding him back can you just tell us about that totally and i can kind of paint the picture because that was our seed round that he put a small check in but you know passed on on leading and has since bought up and has been a wonderful investor and i, I think the world of manager <laughs> so in no way is this me um you know, talking bad about him yeah. So, I mean, one, that seed round was a bit cursed uh, in that I flew out to SF the week essentially that COVID hit the US. It was like the week of the NBA games being canceled and all of that. I ended up getting on a red eye and coming back to the US because we thought like borders were going to close. Everybody was suddenly working from home. No one knew what this meant. So like, you know, I'll give <laughs> a pass to everybody for just trying to like navigate that that time because that's when we were that's when we were all figuring out like what is COVID. But I think that the other thing that I've since learned is I wasn't doing a great job of pitching the vision. I was pitching the company and there's like a distinction and I wasn't sort of pulling forward this long-term vision. I was more saying like, look, we launched very quickly. We have all these customers and here's a really established market and we're going to win it. And I think a lot of investors rightfully were like, that sounds like a good business. It doesn't sound like a good venture scale business. And I think I could have done a better job of explaining, no, no, Anne and I have that in our heads, but what we are, like someone back channeled us once and said we were like very like sneaky operators or something. We don't, um, we don't posture. We don't come off as like, I'm going to crush it and change the world. Like that's just not our vibe. We're, we're like um, relentless executors. And um, so I think that some of that, I just didn't understand kind of how to translate that that like builder me into fundraise um, me, not not in an inauthentic way, but just in a way that was explaining like, it's not that I lack ambition, it is that I um, am also very good at executing. And so figuring out that balance, I think, was something that uh, wasn't nailing when I pitched um, Hunter, but you know, he's since been able to see the executor us and been like, oh, I get it. Like they might not come in, you know, flashy, but, but like they will just kind of like put up wins uh, consistently. It's funny you say that because I spoke to Rahul Vora, the, the founder of Superhuman, a, a few weeks ago. Great. Athena customer. Oh, I didn't know that. There we go. And and he said something similar where I think it's more for him, like, like you know, I'm I'm from England. We're understated. You know, we don't go in and say, we're going to do this. And like you said, like take over the world and stuff like that. And and I think I'm the same as well. Like growing up in England, you you you, you kind of like, I always used to look a little bit like puzzled when you know, every American person I spoke to was super excited to do something versus just excited. You know? But but I say that stuff now as well. I think I've been I've been Americanized now. Are you an entrepreneur looking to buy a profitable online business or a founder ready to sell? Bupas is the number one platform for buying and selling profitable online businesses. With their exclusive listings as well as listings from other marketplaces and the option to submit your own deal for approval, Bupas has you covered. Plus, they're the first to offer built-in acquisition financing for qualified buyers of recurring revenue businesses, allowing you to access fast funding without personal guarantees. And their experienced M&A advisory team supports you every step of the way. To learn more, visit sasclub.io slash bupos. That's sasclub.io slash B-O-O-P-O-S. Sign up today and get qualified to start your entrepreneurial journey or sell your business at the right valuation with bupos.com. Let's talk a little bit about just the idea of like selling compliance software. There's been software around for a long time. And as we talked about, it's not exactly, you know, the most engaging experience for employees to go through. I can definitely see like the end user desperate 
for something better. Like ideally not having to do it, but if they have to do it, give me a less painful, maybe even a, you know, a pleasant experience when I use, you know, kind of go through this training. From a buyer perspective, that's, that's the person that you need to talk to. Maybe how much of the pain did they experience from this and, and how easy or hard was it for you to convince them that they needed this software? I was very sympathetic to, to your point to the end user. I got that like the random salesperson was like, this is dumb. Why am I here? I didn't understand our um, actual buyer's pain points because I had never lived that. So I didn't understand that they were spending sometimes 10 hours a week going through like CSVs and checking against maybe their HRIS data, who hasn't done the training. Oh my gosh, all of California didn't actually get the right training because whatever, we had some glitch. And so it took me a while to learn like, oh, they have two pain points. One is that nobody likes to be the like fun police, the person who says to the entire company, you're going to do something you hate for six hours. But I needed to understand like why in particular is that painful? So like, I think really great sales is about discovery. And so in talking to our customers and talking to prospects, I would understand things like, oh, you get support tickets because the software crashes. So the random engineer can't even do the training. They claim they've done the training, but you can't see that it was completed. They are saying that the training was offensive because it had really, for example, gendered stereotypes in the training. So like I need to explain not just that employees hate it because employees complain about everything, but um, how does that like specifically, where does that pain show up? And so I started to uncover like, okay, it shows up in support tickets. Let's talk about how many and how long it takes you to you know deal with those. Or let's talk about risk associated with the fact that there are errors. And then they say like, yeah, that's actually like kind of a problem. And it's been flagged by our legal team. And, you know, okay, can you solve that problem? And so it just like ended up getting from general to specific. And then we could align the product with like the specific pain points and and, and eventually show impact, not just the features. So you've got some big names as customers, Netflix, Zendesk, uh, Figma, Notion, superhuman. How did you go out and, and get these big customers? What, what were you doing? You know, was this like, out, actually, it wasn't outbound because you, you told me earlier that that's something that you've just recently started doing. So how did you get these customers? Totally. So we got our first huge group of customers um, to include Netflix actually through press. You know, I think press can be like a really underutilized tool where Maybe you just say like, we raised a lot of money, yay us, but we really tried to talk about the problem that we were tackling. So we said, for example, our first, um, the course that we had was sexual harassment. So we said like, hey, companies are investing a lot in inclusivity, but once a year they sit everyone down and they have this huge opportunity to um, explain what inclusivity looks like. Let's talk about what's right and what's wrong and what to do when you see wrong. And instead we're all just clicking a box. Like literally, what are we doing here? Why don't we do this thing? Why don't we take something that we have to do and make it something we want to do? We talked about that in an article that was in TechCrunch and later found out that um, the CEO of Netflix had like seen it, shared it with his legal team. Um, and that's like how, you know, I, I learned about them and I would have this very um, minimal uh, CRM or you know, people would put their emails through and I would just look and see like, oh, at big company. And I would email them and be like, hi, what do you want to talk about? And I just got on a call with them totally unafraid because I figured like I've got nothing to lose. We're a small company and did discovery, learned about their pain points. Why are you on a call with me? Like you have a lot of other things to do. Oh, you really hate your training. What do you hate about it? So like press was one. And then once we started getting customers, the second big one was word of mouth. 
So like, you know, we never took a customer for granted. Like we were just so excited to have um, our early customers. And so I think that like looked like delivering a really great experience such that when they were in an HR Slack channel and someone slacked out, hey, I've got to, you know, do my annual compliance training. Any good vendors out there? Someone would say, hey, check out Athena. And suddenly it would be like, you know, boom, boom, boom. We'd get five emails and be like, where'd you guys come from? And they'd say like, oh, Susie at whatever, you know. Um, and then the third thing we started to get really good at is just working our network. So someone who I went to college with knew someone and I would, or actually a great example. I was interviewing someone to be on our sales team and it wasn't a good fit, but I was like, do you want to tell your legal team about us? And the guy was like, sure, I'll tell my legal team about you guys. And that's how we got a public tech company because just like someone we interviewed emailed their HR or legal team and they were willing to get on a call with me and then they bought. The press... Was that just the one TechCrunch article or, or was it like kind of a result of, you know, a number of these kinds of articles or whatever that you were, you were kind of getting out there and, and talking about the problem with? Initially it was one, but um, we did a really good job storytelling and brand building and did the work behind it. So for example, I wrote a fortune op-ed about why um, sexual harassment training is broken and I wrote it with Gretchen Carlson, and that got a lot of attention because, like, it was very well researched. I articulated, like, there is research that shows at best this doesn't work. At worst, it makes men in particular have more unconscious gender bias. This is bananas. And then some CHR would read it and say, like, this is bananas. And be like, yeah, <laughs> like, I'm citing studies. I'm just like marketing the problem, really. And then we can talk about my solution. But yeah, initial press moments followed up by, I think, like a smart approach to essentially being a thought leader in the space. You know, I'm, I'm amazed that nobody has tried to build kind of this modern compliance software. I mean, maybe there are other products out there. Yeah, it just seems surprising that there are so many uh, employees still kind of going through this painful experience when, you know, if it's done in the right way, it could actually achieve what the objective is, right? As you said, is like to, to hopefully make sure that you have the right kind of culture in your organization. I mean, I think this is why like we've grown through word of mouth. Like once people are, I mean, one of the biggest ways we'll grow is even an employee, not even HR, a, a current customer will switch jobs and they'll just share it to their HR. Hey, I just took our current training and it's kind of bad. <laughs> Like, could you please look at Athena? This is the hot take. But I think like perhaps the reason the problem itself wasn't tackled is one of the biggest, like the um, sort of most commonly done, uh, meaning completed course um, for compliance is sexual harassment. And that disproportionately impacts women and women don't get funded by venture capitalists. (laughs) And so I think that like this problem, while the problem is pervasive from a market perspective, I think it is unfortunately the type of problem that is seen differently based on a bunch of fact, demographic factors, but one of them being gender. Athena is two two women founders. Yes, you've been able to raise money, and I think you're at what just a shy over 50, 50 million now, right? Yeah. Have, did you face any challenges raising money because of your gender? Do you feel? I think there's no way to look at the stats and say that there isn't a just dis, like a, a disparate experience for women founders. And I mean, the stats are atrocious for founders of color. Like there's there's a um, a bunch of different ways that this manifests, but my experience is, is with being um, a woman. And like, yeah, I had blatant examples to include, you know, VCs asking if I was pregnant or planning on getting a 
pregnant. I saw my co-founder, who's our CTO, be sort of challenged, like, okay, but you're the actual engineer. Like, there were definitely questions that she just wouldn't have gotten if her name was Tim. People would have just assumed that she had the engineering chops. And those are the things that, like, I see, you know, and so then the things that um, I don't see or that, you know, are um, unconscious, they're not explicit, but uh, when you look at, you know, when you think about what a um, SaaS founder looks like, you don't see a team like, you know, you just picture the um, archetype. You don't you don't see a team that looks like my co-founder and I. And um, I think that maybe the positive side of this is that I do think that being a team that looks like ours has allowed us to attract some really great talent and kind of punch above our weight for recruiting precisely because we build a culture where um, it says like, we want to have a place that, you know, everyone feels like they can show up and do great work and just like, can't really like not have to deal with this bullshit. Um, And that doesn't mean we're flawless, but it does mean that I think we've just like attracted a really great team. But yeah, it is absolutely manifested in uh, a bunch of different ways in terms of raising venture capital. And I don't think you can look at the stats around, you know, less than 3% going to teams that look like Anne and I and conclude any differently, unless you think that teams like us just have worse ideas. Yeah. And I think often, as you said, I think it's not, it's often there's this bias or people say things and they don't realize what they're saying. But, you know, it was clear to you, you pick it up. I I remember some uh, once spelling my last name and uh, this person spelt it as K-A-H-N. And I said, oh, it's actually K-H-A-N. And this person said, uh, oh, yeah, that's right. You people spell it the other way around. It's like, you people, right? And so, it's, yeah, it's just like, you know, when you're, when you're on the receiving end of that, you notice that, whereas the person who's saying what they're saying maybe doesn't even realize, realize, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it shows up a lot, like words like hustle, which like, I completely understand why that is incredibly important. But I sometimes feel like I was almost, I mean, I, I've had, remember someone saying like, this is a really hard thing to do. Like, why do you want to do something hard? And I was like, do you ask male founders who pitch you like why they want to do something, you know, hard and being in particular confused because my background, like I've deployed to combat, I have jumped out of planes, like I'm not sure why you think that like I've had some coddled existence such that um, it is odd for me to express ambition here. And uh, yeah, so like that's (laughs) those are my thoughts. on that. All right. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about kind of where you are. Today, a lot of your customers are obviously tech companies, and we're going through some changes in in tech right now. How is that affecting your business and and kind of the way you look at the outlook for for the coming year? You're exactly right that our primary customer base is tech. We actually sell a lot into finance as well, um, finance and and fintech. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's like a, you know, if you look at our logos, these are companies that have gone through like some of them 20% layoffs. Like it is a hard time in tech. I think that's, that's like not a, um, not a controversial statement. What I am so proud of is our renewals are just incredibly high, like north of 95%. We just keep the customers who join Athena and that's been true even when we see a you know a renewal of a company who has gone through uh, layoffs or you know sort of other headwinds. And I think what it's taught our team is like it's incredibly important to show value, and we are incredibly grateful to be a mission critical system. That is, you have to do compliance training and in um, any sort of like distributed workforce, meaning you've got com- uh, employees that across multiple states, you need an e learning solution that's very good. 
And so that's not to say we sit on our laurels because I think you absolutely need to to continue to to fight hard, but it has made us grateful that our entry point into the market is one that is required. You you just got to like it's legally required. But I think that it's manifested in, you know, all of the challenges teams needing to say like, hey, we have fewer people and us needing to rethink our messaging and say like, you know what, let's really make sure we show how much time we save um, and admin. And like, let's just break it down and say, you used to spend all this time doing manual work. You told us this and, and like get a little bit more, I think, um, precise in terms of the value that we provide, because understandably teams are asking, you know, these kinds of questions. So is your pricing, I couldn't find pricing on your website. So I assume that's because you're still testing your pricing. It is not, but it's more of a, our website can continue to be improved. Um, we have very standard uh, pricing, but I, I hear your point. Okay. Okay. Good to know. The is, is the pricing based on the number of employees or people taking the training? Is that how you structure it? That's exactly right. Um, per employee per year. So if you're if you're seeing a 20% company with a 20% layoff, that potentially means that the that the, the, the kind of the contract value there could also That's totally right. Like contraction can be, you know, and I think it's like I spent a lot of time talking to SaaS founders with similar business models and, you know, like revenue contraction is absolutely something that's like important to keep your um, eye on. I think how I've been navigating this time is sort of asking like in the same way that a company like mine will see the the good times, right? Your company grows um, with us. Yay, their contract grows. We will see the challenging times. Company is now, you know, fifty percent of the employees they were. Like that is that is going to absolutely hit um, hit um, our top line as well. Is to sort of ask myself, like, what are the fundamental drivers of like if we're providing value? And I mean, I think it's a piece of advice that I got two years ago, but didn't resonate as much then. But like, don't ride the highs because you'll have to ride the lows. Is like, don't celebrate kind of almost like vanity metrics or just like, yay, the economy is growing, we're growing, and instead ask like. Why do I believe that Athena will win? I believe it'll win because it's a mission critical um, system, but it's also now something that companies want, right? Culture and compliance. And like that hasn't changed. And just because of these like economic conditions, that may mean I need to position it differently. It might mean I need to structure things differently. But end of the day, if I can um, get and keep customers like that, you know, is is um, the long-term drivers. And I've been very grateful for, you know, a group of investors who um, I think is like less maybe like twitchy than what I can feel sometimes on Twitter of just like, oh my God, everyone's software is dead. It's like software is not dead. <laughs> it's a hard time, but you know, like that, um, we just can't swing like that dramatically. It's very hard to operate in an environment in which you do. Okay. Uh, let's uh, wrap up, uh, move on to the lightning round. I've got seven quick fire questions for you. You ready? Yeah. What's one of the best pieces of business advice you've ever received? <laughs> it's probably back to the first quote of just like leaders do work, like pretty good advice. What book would you recommend to our audience and why? I really like um, Reed Hastings, No Rules, Rules. It's him and a co-author who I'm forgetting. I think it's an amazing book on um, company culture. What's one attribute or characteristic in your mind of a successful founder? I think it's a steady hand. What's your favorite personal productivity tool or habit? Um, I'm going to go very uh, low tech and say walks outside with no screen. <laughs> Well, what's a new or crazy business that you'd love to pursue if you had the extra time? <laughs> oh man, uh, I don't have one at the top of my head, but I'm a mom and I feel like I've had a million ideas for random like child baby uh, things that like the world probably doesn't need, but 
Yeah. I'm telling you, when you when when you're when you're a parent with a with a baby, you'll buy anything if it gives you stuff. Take my money. Just like take my money and make it stop. Yeah. <laughs> like, Will it help me sleep? Yeah, I'll pay whatever. What's an interesting or fun fact about you that most people don't know? I grew up in Walt Disney World's planned community. Wow. What what is what in Epcot? Uh, it's basically Epcot. It's a celebration, Florida. It's right outside of Disney World, and it was intended to be like Epcot, but people live there. And uh, finally, what's one of your most important passions outside of your work? Um, I really love working out. Um, I am a CrossFitter, which is embarrassing to admit in public, but it brings me a lot of joy and stress relief. Thank you so much for joining me, um, and uh, congratulations on you know the the traction and the success you've had to date. If uh, people want to check out Athena, they can go to goathena.com and that's Athena with an E, even though I make it sound like an A. Uh, We'll include a link in the show notes. And uh, if folks want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Probably LinkedIn, um, which I know is not where the cool kids hang out, but it is uh, definitely where I am. It's uh, Roxanne Petraeus. Awesome. We'll include a link to your profile in the show notes as well. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And uh, I wish you and the team the best of success. Thank you so much. Are you still wrestling with rigid spreadsheets that slow down your team? JotForm Tables is a solution you've been looking for. JotForm Tables combines the power of a spreadsheet with the flexibility of a database. You can collect your data through customizable online forms and JotForm Tables automatically organizes and stores all the data submitted through your JotForm forms. You can also import and export files and collaborate with your team effortlessly. All changes are synced in real time, so everyone is always on the same page. But JotForm Tables is more than just a spreadsheet alternative with conditional formatting, data visualization, and more than 250 integrations, it's a complete productivity platform for your team. You can even automate tasks and workflows to save time. Ready to centralize your data, boost your team's efficiency, and take your productivity to new heights? Sign up for free at sasclub.io slash jotform. That's sasclub.io slash jotform. Do you dream of owning a profitable online business or are you looking to sell yours? Bupos.com is the number one platform for entrepreneurs and founders alike. With Bupos, you can discover exclusive listings, browse listings from other marketplaces, or submit your own deal for approval. As the first platform to offer built-in acquisition financing for qualified buyers, Bupos makes it easier than ever to acquire a recurring revenue business without personal guarantees. Their experienced M&A advisory team is dedicated to supporting you throughout the process, ensuring a smooth transaction. Don't miss out on this exciting opportunity. To learn more, visit sasclub.io slash bupos. That's sasclub.io slash B-O-O-P-O-S. Sign up today and get qualified to sell your business or find your next venture. Attention SaaS founders, are you determined to scale your B2B business to that coveted million-dollar ARR milestone? I've got something that can help you get there faster. Introducing the SaaS Club newsletter, your weekly companion on the journey to SaaS success. Packed with proven strategies, practical insights, and exclusive interviews with B2B SaaS founders who've been where you are, this newsletter is your ticket to accelerated growth. Each week, in just five minutes, you'll gain access to a treasure trove of growth tactics, lessons learned, and insider tips to help you navigate the challenges of the early stages and scale your business to seven figures and beyond. So why wait? Become part of a 4,000 plus strong community of SaaS founders and entrepreneurs who are already harnessing these insights to drive their growth. Visit sasclub.io slash newsletter and subscribe to the SaaS Club newsletter today. Gain the support and expertise you need to keep forging ahead on your SaaS journey.